The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, as you can see, and we're going to be in Philippians 2, uh, so if you want to turn there, I just want to give you a reminder about an announcement you may or may not have heard or paid attention to. Uh, The crossover camp is coming up. We do this basketball camp. We've been doing it for a number of years now. We've missed it in person the last two years, Uh, but we have an opportunity at Meredith Dunbar uh, Preschool to be able to go out there and uh, invite kids to come. Um, Invitations have been sent out to the Temple Elementary Schools, and so we have lots of kids signed up. Um, But in order to pull this camp off, we need your help. Now, the dates are June 20th to 22nd, and the reason why I'm really feeling an urgent need to request your assistance is I'm going to be in Rwanda during that time, and so I'm having some issues uh, just wanting to make sure the people that are going to be running it have volunteers to help make this an awesome camp. The reason why I'm really pushing it is, uh, one of the reasons is I got a call the other day that a church that has a a summer day camp uh, wants to bring 60 kids to this camp, right? That's beyond the other kids that heard about it through the elementary schools. So you'll know and understand the urgency of my words for you to go to the hub and get signed up. Even now, I don't care. Get your phone out, sign up. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, or anybody else like that. You can just know God and know basketball a little bit, and it'll be great. We're just doing the basics of the the sport, but really primarily showing these kids God's love, sharing the gospel with them, having lunch together. So please, 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 Please help us out and get signed up for that. It's going to be an awesome time. So Philippians chapter 2, and we're looking at 1 through 11 in this series. Uh, Just really excited about today. Uh, We're talking about the humble servant life. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when it comes to teaching on humility, uh, it's a difficult task because I, uh, you know, just studying this passage is one of those things that just slaps you around over and over again if you're prone to pride. And so we can see in this passage, we're going to see what it looks like to live a humble servant life. So look at verse 1 with me. Uh, It says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. You notice there's four ifs given. And it's not just if and whatever follows these words, but when we see things like if and therefore in Scripture, it's important for us to say, hey, this might be calling me to look at something that's already happened as well. And so Paul is helping the readers of Philippi understand, the church of Philippi to understand there's also a theme going on here. And even back in chapter 1, verse 21, he's helping the reader understand, hey, these ifs all come from living the Christ life. Verse 21 of chapter 1 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes through this whole passage of dying to the flesh and being alive in Christ. And so he's saying, if all these things are taking place, then you're going to live in a different way. The result of these ifs in verse 1 is this beautiful picture of unity. All throughout the book of Philippians, we see the topic of unity. It's one of the major themes of the entire letter written. And all throughout Paul's writings, all through those letters, you can see unity 
Look at verse two, and you can see a great picture of it right here. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You notice the theme there. Same, same, one, united. All these things point us to this topic of unity that's found. And even in another letter that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter four, which we just recently covered in this series, the beginning of this series, Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Man, we could definitely use some unity of spirit in our world today, huh? We could definitely use the bond of peace. So here we have a passage that's pointing us to this. So let's take some time today to look at four commands that we can find in this passage that lead us to adopting a humble servant life. Command number one is to kill pride. Kill pride. Verse three, the first half of that verse says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So why is Paul addressing humility? Again, we need to ask ourselves and look at the context of the scripture and see what has happened before. And we can see an example of why he's addressing this in verse 17 of chapter one. We can see that religious leaders, these leaders uh, that would be equivalent of speakers or leaders in the church today, were going about things really to draw attention to themselves and to get a name for themselves and even to uh, add affliction to Paul in the process. And I know, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm sure it was just back then that religious leaders struggled with that, right? Drawing attention to themselves getting a name for themselves, getting known worldwide, that type of thing. Well, he's dealing with us here and help us understand that it's not just religious leaders though, right? We all struggle with selfish ambition. We all struggle with pride. John Stott says at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you think about that verse and that kind of really hit me hard this, uh, this past when I was looking into it. When you look into that scripture and you see that he opposes the proud, it's not just a one-time opposition, but this, this verb opposes actually carries with it an active and a present tense. It's kind of like uh, if you're into sports, if you're, you're playing basketball or something like that, or if you're running back and you hit a wall when it comes to the, the defensive line, that's a, an active, immediate response. You're hitting that wall and falling over. But instead of that just being a one-time thing, this opposition from God himself that comes from pride is also an active thing that continues to hit you and you continue to butt up against it to the point that it really destroys your relationship with the Father because you're living in active opposition to God. So it's a dangerous place for us all to be. So part of killing pride, I think, is taking some time to consider where it shows up most in our lives. If we really want to attack something, we really want to see God do a work and change our hearts, we really need to address, well, where does this show itself? Because it's easy for us to point out pride in other people, right? 
Oh, she does this and he does that. And man, I hate it when you do that all the time. And we point that out in our spouses all the time but, and, and our friends and our, our family. But oftentimes we, we really don't consider, well, where does it show itself in our own lives? So this morning, I was convicted by that. I didn't even have it in my notes coming up into this time this morning as I was getting ready. I was like, I need to write out some of these things of where pride shows up. So I'll be honest in front of you. I'm sure none of you deal with what I'm about to say. Why do I always attach myself to success when I really need to feel failure? Why do I always want to be part of the successful things but I act like I have no part in the failure and I have nothing to learn from it. I want to put my failures aside and really not really want anybody to know the things I fail in. I just want to be successful. Why do I try to make myself look better than I really am, especially on social media? Why don't I take a picture of myself uh, eating a donut on the couch instead of sweaty after a workout? Why do I want to make myself Why can't I take someone questioning how or why I'm doing something? I run into this with my family all the time where it's like I get a question about something and I take great offense at that. Why are you questioning me? And it's just like it even feels ridiculous to say it in front of you. Like who am I to not be questioned? But that's where it shows itself. Really? You're going to question my plan? It's a good plan. I've thought it out. Just go with it. No, it's okay. It's okay to receive questions. Why do I speed up when someone is trying to merge from two lanes into one? (laughs) And why do I do the same thing trying to merge into that one lane and get mad at the people that won't let me in? I know none of you do that. People are just laughing at me. I understand. Why is it sometimes difficult for me to celebrate someone else's success? Why can't I be just as happy or even happier that someone else had success in something? Why can I only celebrate when I'm part of that success? And why is my way the best way? As if I was able to write all the rules about what's going on in life. And everyone else's opinion is secondary. Those are just a few. I could have gone on and on. Just a few of those. So we need to kill pride. Not only do we need to kill pride, we don't just are left there in a negative command, but we're called to embrace humility. Look at the second half, verse three. We can look at the the whole thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Remember growing up in church and As a pastor's kid, being there, you just felt like night and day every day of the week. I was in church all the time, and I felt these negative commands, negative commands, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And it was just like this long list, like, how am I going to do all this? You know, how am I going to keep all these commands? But I loved it when the the teacher or whoever was uh, sharing that day gave some positive alternatives Instead of us, especially as parents sometimes, we're just bashing our kids. Don't, 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 don't. And your kid just grows up resenting church, resenting Christ, resenting just the body of Christ because all they see is don'ts. Instead, Paul says, no, let's do something different. He offers a positive alternative. 
C.J. Mahaney puts humility this way, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So we're embracing the fact that we are completely sinful and that God is completely holy. And it helps us embrace humility in a different way. See, most of us struggle in, in embracing humility. And one of the ways, and I wrote in here one of the best ways, but I think the best is like kind of prideful. This is the best way to look at humility. So I had to adjust it. Like one of the good ways of, of looking at humility, okay, is looking at people around you that you really find humble and can act in humility the opposite of what you normally do. God places those people all around us. We have someone in this church that, that after each service that as you leave, after you leave, cleans up after you. You didn't, probably didn't even know that. She wouldn't want her name even mentioned. A man that was on the end of that row up here for Rwanda, Todd Martin, who leads in our youth ministry and has been leading for almost 20 years. Humble. No recognition, just doing his thing. Getting stuck with, I'm sorry if you're a fifth grader, but getting stuck with fifth grade boys sometimes. <laughs> and still having a smile on his face as they're running around the room. But here he is, a humble servant. I've learned so much from people like this. And for all of us, we can open our eyes to see God's given us great examples of biblical humility. So not only are we supposed to kill pride, embrace humility, but not only embracing humility, but also practicing humility as well. In verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's interesting that he says, look not on your own interest because he makes an assumption. What's the assumption he's making? You look out for yourself. I don't care if you're like bold and brash or quiet, you're looking out for yourself. You really are. I think most of you probably showered this morning, right? You're looking out for yourself or maybe looking out for people next to you. But the idea is that we look out for ourselves. But he's saying, don't just do that, but now let's look out for the interests of others. I learned this lesson in a powerful way my first year of college. I went to a, a small Christian school in upstate New York in the mountains, and I got to play on a basketball team up there. And through that basketball uh, team, we also did ministry through that, and we got to even play in some prisons. And so I wish I had a picture of it to help you understand even better, but we're heading out to play in this prison, and we're driving up this mountain road, and it's like some scene out of like a horror movie. It's like thick fog, all you can see is barbed wire and floodlights, and you're just driving, I'm like barely 18 years old, I'm like going to this medium security prison to play basketball. And so you go through the checkpoints and everything, you get through all that mess, and you go to the gym, and then, of course, I realize I forgot my sneakers in the van, so I have to go back through the checkpoints, and I get a special ride. The special ride was with the, uh, the guards. 
And uh, <clears throat> the guards even told me themselves, you might want to watch out for us more than the prisoners who are about to play. And they proceeded to make me nervous and humble me by jokes they mentioned along the way, like, let's go right instead of left toward the gym and see how he does. And so I was already a little nervous. And so I go into this gym, throw on my sneakers. We go out and warm up, playing against these prisoners in this basketball game. It was an intense game. It ended up going to overtime. And so we're playing, intense game. We're on a fast break. And this guy, this prisoner, knocks me over. Half court, boom, fall on my butt. And he, of all things, stops, reaches down, and helps me up. And I'm looking down the court at my team, and I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, he's just going to keep... He reached down, and as an 18-year-old, it just blew me away. It, it just blew my mind that this man would stop, look not on, only on his own interests. I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he definitely exemplified it. He looked on the interests of others and said, here, boom, help me up, and we went on our way. That was a long, long time ago. And that was one of the first things I, I, I thought of when it came to this verse. Looking not on your own interests, but the interests of others Man, we can do this in so many ways, especially in our families. Isaiah 66, 2 says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How do I draw God's attention? Humility. Do I feel like God is far from me? Do I feel like I can't hear from him? It may be a point where we need to drop to our knees and humble ourselves before God and see him speak once again. It's contrary. This idea of embracing humility and practicing humility is contrary to most, most everything that culture teaches us. Like again, when I think of an athlete, I think of a, a football team or something like that, it's like the quarterback, right? The wide receiver, the running back, or, or someone who's uh, the leader of the team, or, or whatever it is, the star of the show in a, in a, in a theater performance, or whatever you might relate to. We're all called to really pursue those things. But how about that offensive lineman? I'm going to be an offensive lineman. A friend of mine in the back is an offensive lineman. Like, that's not really a celebrated position. But really, we can look to the offensive lineman of life to see, you know what? Humility can be taught here. It's not about us. So we're at a point in this time in the word where we really feel somewhat hopeless, helpless. Because all of us can't be humble. We can try. We can have moments of humility. But it really seems like an impossible task. Kind of without hope. And it made me think of uh, going out to California. We went to, uh, to California last week with my family, took a little break. We were on the beach and those waves are nothing like, of course, you see in the Gulf of Mexico, they're not even waves, uh, but you get to the Pacific Ocean and it's like, bam, bam. And the wind was strong that day and it was, uh, we were in the ocean and my girls slowly made their way. They ran away from the cold water to begin with and they made their way slowly. My boys were just all about it, in it right away. They didn't care. And so my youngest son, he's eight years old, Owen, he's 
in the water with me. I think we have a picture of him. He's just the cutest little kid. But he's there, and he's in the water, and these waves are just smashing him. And Noah and I were beyond those waves where they break, but Owen just couldn't seem to quite get past where they're breaking. And you know how it is if you've been in the ocean like that. It's like it hits you, and it pushes you back three steps. You walk two steps forward, you get three more back. And that's what was happening to him. It was like he was in a washing machine, you know? And he's, it's just this cute little picture where he's just reaching out his arm to his dad. He's reaching out, you know, and he didn't even say anything. It was like, help me, you know? And as a dad, you're just like, I got you. Grab his arm, pull him through the wave, and kind of help him out a little bit. But it's the picture that I got of where we're at when it comes to humility, where we're hopeless, we're helpless, we can't do it on our own. And what we do, we reach out our hand. So I can't do this. I've tried a million different ways, but I can't do it on my own. I need you, Father, to pull me through. I need your spirit to fill me. So how do we accomplish this task? We realize we can't. And then the fourth command is we go about being like Christ. Verses five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves which was, is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say past tense here. Is yours. You have Christ Jesus. If you've trusted him as your savior, you have Christ. You have the ability to live out Christ's life through you through the power of the Spirit and through the encouragement of God's word. So this is where Paul gives us the command to practice humility in verse four, but he follows it up with a way we can accomplish this monumental, impossible even task, which is the Christ life. Verse five challenges us to adopt the same attitude, and then he goes through a description of Jesus Verse six, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So here's his example of humble service. So what are ways we can be like Christ? How can we adopt this humble attitude? There's four things you can look at. First of all, study the word. Find your foundation in humility in the word of God. Psalm 119, 15 and 16 says, I will meditate on your precepts. Fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It reminds me of Peter, you know, when he was crashing around in those waves, right? And he took his eyes off Jesus and he started to sink. We fix our eyes on the Savior through the word. So a deep knowledge of the Son of God through the word allows us to be fixed and focused as we pursue the mission God has us on. We're not caught off guard. We have a firm foundation. Our beliefs and pursuits, they don't change depending on what the culture says. We stay true to his word. Secondly, we need to die to sin. Romans 6 is all about this, Romans is all about it. Verse 11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. 
dead to sin. Romans 12.1 talks about offering our bodies as an act of worship. Here we are, we're di- we die to sin by offering ourselves to God. And then thirdly, we pursue unity. Again, we were challenged from Ephesians 4 to be unified, and if we're gonna be like Christ, we're called to unity. In verse 13 of Ephesians 4, it says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You notice a theme going on here? We got the ocean all over these passages. So we're not tossed to and fro anymore because we're unified in the body of Christ in the knowledge of the Son of God to be mature and no longer be children. And fourth, we can serve others. This is how we act out the Christ life. We serve others. If you look at Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and him walking with his disciples toward Jerusalem, in verse 35 uh, through 41, it talks about how Christ was walking with the disciples and James and John had this great idea, right? James and John had this idea that they were gonna ask something special of Jesus. Hey, I know there's 10 other guys here, but could you put us on your right and your left? Could that be a place that we could occupy? Would that be cool with you? And Jesus is like, oh, you don't know what you're asking. You can't drink the cup that I'm gonna drink. And like, sure we can. (laughs) Just like Peter, you know, answering quickly, we'll drink a cup. They didn't understand what cup he was talking about, but they would soon after that. If you move into this passage, the disciples here, just like, you know, if you got siblings and they were trying to get special treatment on the side for mom or dad, and then you heard it, what? Who do you think you are? The disciples respond in this way, and here you have the passage where Jesus pulls them all together. It's an interesting passage in Mark 10. He says, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A perfect example, humble service, Jesus Christ. See, it says in this passage that Jesus, he came as God, the incarnate flesh. The carne is a word that refers to flesh. It refers to meat. You know, you have chili con carne that's with meat, right? That's flesh. Jesus came in flesh. He didn't just come as a spirit. He was body and not just soul. But he didn't hang on to those privileges of God himself. He willingly emptied himself, and it's an interesting thing. Again, as a junior high pastor, I think maybe sometimes juvenile thoughts, uh, I have a picture of how I might picture myself uh, joining this earth if I was the son of God. Let's see that picture up there. Uh, So this is the live action Aladdin, right? And so he comes and he rubs that lamp and he's like, I'm gonna make a big production and a big scene and a big entrance so this princess will marry me, right? This huge production, have you ever seen it? Whether it's the animated version or this one, it's 
blow your mind huge, right? And so for us, we can see this where if it was us, at least me, I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Announce me as the son of God. I can do anything. I'm perfect. I'm holy. I can do miracles. Watch this. But instead, Jesus comes as a humble servant, born of a virgin, not born of noble birth, born in a stinky, nasty manger. And this is how he came, and this is how he lived. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's the result of this sacrifice as we wrap up here in the final verses, look at verse nine. For this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the result of his humble service is first of all, he's exalted. He dies but he's exalted. He gives of himself, but he's exalted. Not the exaltation that comes from this world. Jesus even makes a promise to us in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's not the exalted that's seen in that picture. It's not the exalted of a pat on the back or even a promotion, but it's the exalted before the Father, the creator of all. And this is what he's promising. But not only that, that Jesus is exalted, but then that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's not a matter of if, but when. Author Clarence Haynes puts it this way, there are two ways a person will bow and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. One is by the willingness to surrender. The other is by the wonder of his presence. One is by choice, the other is not. When a person truly encounters Jesus in all his glory, their only response will be to bow and acknowledge he is Lord whether they want to or not, even if they have previously said they would never bow to Jesus, the magnitude of God's presence will overwhelm them and they will have no choice. So in light of this, we have an opportunity then. If every knee is going to bow one day and every tongue will confess one day, and this is talking about after Christ comes back, we have the opportunity, the privilege, and the, the urgency we should feel about sharing our faith as we prayed about during our prayer time, about doing the Great Commission, about making disciples, about being bold in our witness before it's too late, before others are on the wrong side, of bowing and confessing. We have the privilege and the responsibility to carry out this great commission, to go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I, Jesus, is with us always to the end of the age. Again, this is all about Jesus. So these commands to kill pride, to embrace and practice humility, to be like Christ are easy to say, but pretty much impossible to do on our own. You know, pride shows itself in all kinds of ways. I've mentioned the different ways that it shows itself in my life. And it shows itself one more way, if I'm just totally honest, is it shows itself in my desire for control. I want to control whatever environment I'm in, even to the point of like when we play basketball and there's no scoreboard, guess, guess who keeps score? I'm the youngest of four kids. It's like in my genes. I have to do it. 
I'm sorry, but it's just this. I have to have control. I don't want people driving me. I'm going to ride a bus down to New Braunfels, not because I want to, but because I have to. I don't want other people driving me anywhere. I want to be in control. And this showed itself, and God kind of really hit me with it over the last few weeks of my pride in this area of control. I went to Lions Park to catch a, a quick run, just a, two laps around that trail or whatever, and I go down there in the middle of the afternoon, and I'm, I'm on my way home from, from the office, and, um, and at the end of that, and Chase Bowers calls me, I'm on the phone with him, walking up to my truck. I walk up to my truck and open the door, and I think to myself, hey, I don't remember leaving my driver's side window open. And then I look down at my driver's seat and I see a piece of glass. And I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And I'm on the phone with you, I gotta go. Uh, and I look down on the floorboard and my right window is on the floor. And you know what's gone? My backpack that I left on the seat and it had my laptop, but not, that's not so important. But the three passports, including mine and the two kids that were on this stage earlier, those three passports were in that bag and we're supposed to be going to Rwanda. And I know it's busy season. I just heard about passports taking forever, even expedited. And I'm like, oh no. And God hit me with this once again, slap in the face saying, you are not in control. My pride says I got everything together. I got my, my schedule. I've been working with the pastors over there. We got the flights. We got the passports ready. We even ordered Noah as the first ever passport. And guess what? He never got to use it. It's in someone else's car. Showing me I am not in control at all. Now, to speed that story up, because I know you're going to not be left hanging. Uh, they're on the stage, so they're going. Uh, with a thanks to some friends, including our friend Hugh Shine back there, helped me uh, figure out how to get those sped up a little bit. And we got them. And praise God, it's happening. Hopefully. I'm not going to say it is definitely. Hopefully, it is. But it just showed me I'm not in control. And again, pride rears its ugly head in so many ways. This feeling of helplessness when it comes to practice of humility is a great place to start. We can finish this with this quote. Leon Morris puts it this way. The great teaching of the New Testament is that God has paid the price. He has redeemed us. Christ became our redeemer. To release the slaves of sin, he paid the price. We are in captivity. We were in the strong grip of evil. We could not break, break free, but the price was paid, and the result is that we go free. You sitting there as a slave to pride today? Maybe a slave to some other sin that you just can't break free from? Christ offers you a new life, a different life, a different way of living. You can be free from this slavery to sin. So the questions I ask you first is, have you embraced Jesus as your savior? You cannot be free from sin, the bondage of sin, without the sacrifice, without the redemption. And so today, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, you never embraced him as your king. Today is the day to bow before him and say, I trust in you as my savior, my king, my Lord. But if you've done that, the next question for you is, can others see humility in me? Is pride being defeated in my life? 
or is it defeating me? As we sing this song, as we finish up, I want you to take this time as we sing together and let this be a time of confession, of repentance, of turning away from this pride. Maybe you even need to text someone that's not here and apologize, even during as we sing. Or maybe when we get home, you need to call somebody. Or maybe it's a family member that you need to make things right with. Don't let these words fall on deaf ears. Live a life of humility, not to draw attention to yourselves for the things that you do in service, but to ultimately and always point to the great Savior, the King who gave himself for us. Let's stand together as we close with this song.